Hello and welcome. I'm Maureen Conway, Vice President at the Aspen Institute and Executive Director of the Economic Opportunities Program. And I'm thrilled to welcome everyone to our first webinar in our Job Quality and Practice Series. Today's topic is Assessing Job Quality and Equity in Your Local Labor Market, a Closer Look at Race, Gender, and Place. And as we get started, it would be terrific to know a little about who is on the line. Please let us know where you're calling from and what kind of organization you work with. I'll pause for a minute while people respond to the poll. Okay, great. Well, it looks like we have a terrific and, uh, group joining today, uh, calling from across the country in a variety of organizations. So thank you all for joining us. <clears throat> I want to say uh, just a couple words before we begin about uh, technology. Uh, I just want to note that uh, lines are muted, but for questions and comments, we ask you to use the question and answer box on the bottom of the Zoom window. Please submit at any time during the presentation, but other than quick questions for clarification, we'll hold questions until the latter half of the webinar. If you have any technical issues, please chat to Tony Mastria, or you can email us at eop.program at aspeninst.org. Also, today's webinar is being recorded, and we'll make the deck and recording available on our website. I want to thank Prudential Financial for their support of this Job Quality and Practice webinar series, as well as for their support of our past and current efforts to advance a job quality field of practice. The goal of the Job Quality and Practice series is to support practitioners across fields including workforce development, economic development, community development, finance, business advising, public policy, worker advocacy, and more, and to encourage them to address job quality in their work. In the coming months, we will be curating a set of job quality tools from a range of sources that can help leaders across these fields strengthen their focus on job quality outcomes and goals. We'll complement the tools with our webinar series to provide a forum to highlight innovative work and discuss practical approaches across disciplines. Okay, so why are we focusing on this issue of job quality and how job quality outcomes can be advanced in practice? This slide provides a partial answer from our perspective, but I'm also glad to note that we're not alone in our survey in our concern about job quality. Gallup recently released a survey with a job quality framework and noted that less than half of American workers are in good jobs. A consortium of research organizations recently released a job quality index, and they would corroborate Gallup's finding about low quality jobs. And in addition, they note that the quality of private sector jobs in the US is on a declining trend and generally has been since 1990. This, to make an understatement, is a problem. 
Since the vast majority of households depend on income from wage and salary employment to support themselves, and since much of our time is spent at work, a quality job has a profound influence on the quality of a person's life, and with obvious ripple effects to the quality of family life and life in a community. It is also important to note that the burden of low quality work falls disproportionately on women and workers of color, as well as on younger workers. And that is why we intentionally included equity as a central focus in this first job quality conversation. At the Economic Opportunities Program, we have thought about ways to improve job quality for a long time. Our work on sector or industry-specific strategies, which dates back to the 1990s, focused not only on how to help individuals access good jobs in their communities, but also on ideas to make what might be seen as bad jobs into better jobs. More recently, we advanced a raise the floor and build ladders framework to promote job quality. The idea is that while training and career pathways can help low-income workers advance economically, workers need basic economic stability in order to take advantage of these economic mobility strategies. The image here provides one framework for thinking about the components of job quality. There are other frameworks and definitions you can draw on as you consider what job quality means for the work of your organization. I mentioned Gallup earlier as one framework, the National Fund for Workforce Solutions, are the Economic Opportunities Programs, Job Quality Fellows, and others have also offered frameworks for thinking about job quality. If you look at the graphic, one thing you might note is that some of the elements of a quality job here are easier to find data on than others. For example, having a respectful supervisor or a manageable commute can be very important to job quality, but can be difficult to measure consistently across jobs. There's some, these are some of the complexities we need to be mindful of when we look to assess job quality. But today, we'll start with what you can measure, for, as the saying goes, what gets measured gets managed. So in today's discussion, we'll focus on how leaders across different kinds of organizations can take concrete steps to assess job quality and equity in local labor markets. What data sources and tools can you put to work? And how can we build race, ethnicity, gender, and place into our job quality assessments? And I'm pleased now to introduce my colleague, Jenny Weisford, a senior project manager with the Economic Opportunities Program, who will be moderating today's conversation. Jenny? Thanks, Maureen. We have a terrific set of experts with us today. Um, First, we'll hear from two research and policy experts on how they use data to think about disparities in job quality in a region. Chandra Childers is a study director at the Institute for Women's Policy Research, and Jeremy Greer is a co-founder and co-executive director at Liberation in a Generation. Then EOP research director Amy Blair will share the MIT Living Wage Calculator, a tool developed by Amy Glasmire, who was really hoping to be with us today but had an unexpected conflict come up. Amy will talk about practical ways to use this tool in your work to assess job quality. As Maureen mentioned, we'll leave time for your questions at the end. We'll be monitoring the Q&A box throughout the webinar, and we'll address those questions once all three speakers have wrapped up. It's now my privilege to introduce Chandra Childers, an expert on social and economic inequality by race and sex, whose work focuses on women and girls of color and job quality. Chandra will speak about how to use data to measure job quality and disparity in a specific place through a case study of her research on women's job quality in Mississippi. Good afternoon, everyone. I would like to thank you all for joining us. 
I will be sharing with you some of the research that I have done looking at job quality in Mississippi. The Women's Foundation of Mississippi approached us at the Institute for Women's Policy Research to discuss the development of a job quality index that would allow them to assess the overall quality of jobs in Mississippi to assess whether there were substantial changes in job quality over the last decade and to assess whether and to what extent all residents of Mississippi had access to good quality jobs. The following is a brief overview of our process in developing the job quality index. So the first question is, what is a good job? What constitutes a good job? These are just some of the indicators that we came up with when thinking about what makes a job a good one. Wages, health insurance, retirement benefits, full-time, full-year employment, access to paid, paid leave generally, paid sick leave in particular, opportunities for upward mobility, autonomy at work, having a safe work environment, and job satisfaction. There are numerous other indicators that we could have included here, and different indicators might be important to different sets of workers based on their personal circumstances. So a, a mother with young children, might it might be more important to her to have flexibility and paid sick leave, while a young worker just starting out might be more interested in having autonomy or opportunities for upward mobility. These would all be important for workers. But we decided when looking across these that we needed indicators that not only were important to the majority of workers, but as Maureen said, are indicators that we can actually measure, that we can get measures of. And so we settled on the first five of those you see on your screen. Median wages, the share of workers with health insurance coverage, retirement benefits, full-time, full-year employment, and paid sick leave. So once we decided on the indicators that we would use to measure job quality, we had a few other decisions that we needed to make about how to measure our indicators and job quality. First, what would be our unit of analysis? Should we look at median wages and benefits for individual workers, workers in specific occupations, or workers in particular industries? We wanted our report to provide a tool for policymakers, educators, workforce developers, and others who are advising students and adult workers on their career paths. So we focus on occupations because knowing this particular occupation that you're thinking of going into, it allows you to tailor your education and other training to prepare for that field. So that's where we decided to focus. Our second question was whether our measure should be absolute or relative. Here, there are absolute standards for what level of wages, for example, constitute a good wage. Should we focus on an absolute measure, say example, looking at median earnings nationally, or look at something more relative to where workers actually live? So while we definitely think there's an absolute level that constitutes a good wage below which no worker should be paid, we also wanted to acknowledge that what constitutes a good wage in New York is not the same as what constitutes a good wage in Mississippi. So we decided to go with a relative measure. We measured the quality of jobs provided by each occupation based on how the occupation's wages and benefits compare to the typical worker in Mississippi. Because not all job quality indicators are valued equally, we decided we should weight wages more than some other indicators. 
As important as paid sick days is for workers, having higher wages is more important. So we decided to weight earnings at four times more than the remaining indicators. Or you could think of this as earnings being equal to the other four indicators combined. Finally, even with large national data sets that we use for this analysis, they tend to have small sample sizes when you're looking at them at the state level. And this is particularly true when you're disaggregating the data by sex, race, ethnicity, and other characteristics that are important to consider when examining job quality. For example, you're not likely to have enough black women engineers with an employer-sponsored pension plan in Mississippi to complete an analysis. So this required us to aggregate the data. And there are several ways that you can aggregate the data to get around the small sample problem. The most common method is to use multiple years of data. So for our analysis, we combined data for 2012, 2013, and 2014. This gave us a larger sample, but this sample was still not large enough for many of the detailed occupations that we wanted to consider. So we decided to use occupations at a more aggregate level as well. So, for example, instead of looking at separately preschool and kindergarten teachers, separately from elementary and middle school teachers, secondary school teachers, and librarians, the data provides us, the Census Bureau and the IPMS provides us with a more aggregated, broad occupational group. And this combines those detailed occupations into a larger occupation called education, training, and library occupations. So this allowed us both combining the number of years and combining detailed occupations to really begin to look in depth at what's occurring within the labor market and job quality in Mississippi. We use these larger, more aggregate occupations and where the sample sizes were large enough, however, we did still include data for those individual occupations that had large enough samples. And for those, we also provided information on median wages, whether job growth was increasing or the job was declining, um, typical education that's needed for workers in those occupations as a way to provide the detail that people need as they're beginning to plan moving forward. So our job quality index grouped our occupations into five general job categories. The graphic here shows the share of all women and all men in Mississippi working in each of our job quality categories. So first, at the top, you can see the best job quality category. This is a really small category with less than 5% of men and just 2% of women working in these occupations in Mississippi. But men outnumber women two to one. These jobs are largely professional jobs like engineers, architects, and computer programmers and they tend to pay well and have good benefits. Men also outnumber women in average quality jobs. These are jobs that employ the absolute largest numbers of workers in Mississippi, and men outnumber women in below average jobs. Women, however, outnumber men in above average jobs and in the worst quality jobs. So the above average quality jobs includes jobs in management and business, so these are jobs where women have been able to, to, find a, to find a good hold in the occupation. 
The worst quality jobs, however, include some of the fastest growing jobs, not only in Mississippi, but nationally. Jobs like personal care aides, which are projected to add some of the largest numbers of workers over the next decade. But this category also includes jobs like child care, wait child care workers and waiters and waitresses. These worst quality jobs employ almost one in five women in Mississippi and more than one in 10 men. So since such a large share um, of workers are in these occupations, let's look at them a little more closely. So here we have our five job quality categories along with the median earnings for workers in each of the categories and the share of workers in each with each of our benefits. First, there are large differences between better and worse quality jobs, as you can see. Best quality jobs have median earnings of more than $60,000 a year, and the vast majority of workers have benefits, including almost 72% with retirement benefits. And I would like to note that the quality of benefits, while not evident here, is also likely better in these jobs as well. They are not only likely to be employed full-time, full-year, but they are also more likely to have flexibility in their schedules, for example, to be able to work from home when necessary, while workers in worse job quality categories are less likely to have these benefits. They have median earnings of just over $20,000 a year, which is too little to provide a family with economic security. Just half of these workers had full-time, year-round work and only one in five had retirement benefits. Finally, we include a number of other measures in the report that we do not include um, in our index for methodological reasons. These include, for example, um, changes in unemployment, the share of workers in each occupation who works full-time year-round but still have earnings below the official poverty level. Um, while the share of workers below the poverty line is important in itself, looking at that change allows us to track the quality and changes in the quality of jobs. And finally, these are some of the data sources that were the most useful. So the IPMS provides us with a wide array of data on job quality measures that are really important. The Bureau of Labor Statistics provides a wide range Really importantly, they also provide data um, for, 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 I'm blanking on the term, for MSAs as well as for states. <laughs> and most, each state also has a state level Bureau of Labor Statistics. In Mississippi, that's the Mississippi Department of Employment Security. These agencies also provide a wealth of state and local statistics that's really important for understanding job quality in, lo in your local areas and in states. So that is my presentation, thank you. Thank you so much, Sandra, that was really helpful. Um, I'm now delighted to turn it over to Jeremy Greer. Jeremy is the co-founder and co-executive director of Liberation in a Generation, a racial and economic justice organization. And previously, Jeremy served as the Vice President of Policy and Research at Prosperity Now. Jeremy will spend the next few minutes talking about using data to assess racial equity and job quality. Thanks, hi, Jenny. So um, I don't have a PowerPoint slide, um, but I'm gonna talk a bit about 
kind of my evolution in um, doing policy work of uh, applying it to this issue of um, job quality and kind of give you a so maybe as walking through that journey with me, uh, maybe you'll catch some of the um, kind of shifts in my thinking and could hopefully inform some of the shifts in yours. Um, so I spent, uh, I started my career doing community organizing in Columbia Heights here in Washington, D.C. Um, and after doing that, while I was there, I noticed um, I was there in the early 2000s, there was this real clash in the community. Those of you who know D.C. well, um, Columbia Heights used to be a very, I think what people would call impoverished neighborhood, a lot of black and um, immigrant uh, community. And if you go there today, it does not look like the community that I worked in um, in 2002. Uh, there's a lot of, um, it's been hit by what we call gentrification. Um, and I was kind of there at ground zero. So I, I started to have all these questions and, and really observe this clash between economic forces and the uh, and race. Um, I took that curiosity into the work I was doing at the local initiative support corporation and later prosperity now. And um, I was working around policy issues that I would put in um, in one category and I'll, I'll talk about the other category in a moment. But the category is really in um, how are we going to create opportunity for people to um, participate in a system that really doesn't exist for them, right? Uh, the, the economy, it, through the lens that a lot of people look at, is exists to, um, you know, spark growth, um, to uh, really um, enrich those in the in the economy that are, are really controlling it, but really isn't meant for workers. Um, I don't ascribe by that view, but that's the kind of framework which I found, I found myself working in and really struggling with the limitations of that um, because it's hard to center people in a system like that. Um, and then I started talking to some folks who really took the other viewpoint of that, um, that actually the economy should be centering people and asking how does the system work for people? How does the system exist to work for people? Um, and when I, when I thought about that, I, I like you really ask different questions and often have different expectations around outcomes. So Chandra laid out a group, a set of indicators, and I'll talk about a lot of those indicators, but I think the way that we approach that indicator and what we view as success within that is very different depending on that perspective. Is the people in service of the system or is the system in service of people? Um, for those of you who are interested, uh, when I was at Prosperity Now, we uh, looked at, I was in charge of the Assets and Opportunity Scorecard, later became the Prosperity Now Scorecard. Um, a lot of the data that uh, has been referenced is collected on that um, website, so I, I suggest people um, use that. And I also was um, in charge of launching the Racial Wealth Divide Initiative at Prosperity Now, which was to really look at the intersection between race and wealth, and wealth being a great indicator that, that really, um, I think, holds up to a different standard what we should expect our economy to do for people. Um, but a moment on liberation and generation before I go into to, to the, to the uh, work on job quality. So what we're doing is we're really trying to accomplish three things. One, to create a real bold, transformative policy platform 
that is multi-issue, multi-sector, multi-discipline, that what we would say was going to create liberation for people of color within a generation. That means things like closing the racial wealth gap. It means getting a livable wage for all people, all people having health care, things like that. We also are really working on this new story that we want to create for the economy. It is really this question about is the economy in service of people or is it people in service of the economy? And we believe that the economy should be in service of people. The people should be should be thriving within the economy throughout all the diversity around race, ability, um, gender, so on and so forth. And then finally, uh, we believe the way to create change, a way to change that is to really work with organizations and community that are building um, democratic power to change that. So that's kind of the last pillar of this. So on to talk about uh, job quality and how we think about it. Um, we really hone in on the quality part of that, job quality, right? As Sandra did, did as well. Um, and, and really, when you ask quality, it's like, it's also about people's quality of life. Maureen referenced this. And, you know, you ask questions like, is it okay for someone to work 40, a week, 40 hours a week and still live in poverty? Is it okay for someone to work 40 hours a week and have zero wealth? Is it okay for someone to work 40 hours a week and not have health care? Is it okay for someone to work 40 hours a week and not be able to make their rent? I mean, I think if you look at it through the lens of, of people, the answer should be no, right? Because that, and even if you follow the popular narratives, the answer should be no. But unfortunately, that's not the case. Um, I'm not going to go deep into the metrics because Chandra mentioned a lot of them. Wages, right? P do people have wages? Do they have a suite of benefits? Do they feel security when they go to work? Like those are the things that people care about. On wages, um, National Low Income Housing Coalition just did a study recently and found that you cannot live in any state in the union and earn a minimum wage and pay your rent. There is no state in which someone can do that. Actually, in five states, you couldn't do that earning $15, less than $15 minimum wage. And in 23 states, you would not be able to, you have to earn $22 in order to do that. Mm -hmm. So to the point about regional variance, you, have, you can't think about wages through a number. You have to think about what does it mean to live in a place and be able to meet the um, basic needs that you have to live in that place. Around things like, and when was left to leave benefits. Um, Diversity, data diversity kids found that 63% of blacks and 72% of Latinx people cannot afford to take any leave. So there we know though that there's a big discrepancy there around leave. And then um, finally around uh, retirement and medical, um, the Urban League in its um, report on the state of black America documents a really wide gap in retirement leave, uh, benefits for black households and white households. So we know that we have all these problems. And what, what I would say is around the scale is that the answer to the questions of success should be either 100 or zero. It should be 100% of people have a livable wage. That should be success. That should be the metric for success. Um, that 100% of people have access to retirement 
and healthcare benefits. So when you look at it, again, look at it through the lens of people, you think about uh, what success looks like really differently. Um, a few points before I close. Um, one is, in order to get this, and Chandra mentioned it, we really have to do a better job around disaggregating data. And not just disaggregating by race and ethnicity, that's important, but also disaggregating among genders within the racial groups. Because what you find is there are huge, as Chandra mentioned, huge discrepancies in gender. And for example, um, in the Insight Center for Community and Economic Development just did a, story, just did a study around millennial wealth and found that black women Black millennial women are doing far worse than any other demographic um, on the wealth metric. So it's why it's so important to disaggregate um, data. Um, I mentioned some sources, but I'll mention a few more. So Prosperity Now, of course, the Economic Policy Institute is also does a great job around looking at issues around job quality and race. Um, the Institute for Policy Studies also does a really great job looking at um, income and wealth inequality. Uh, by race, and I mentioned the Urban League State of Black America. That's an annual publication that the Urban League does every year. And a new resource, um, the Black Census, which is done by Black Future Labs, which has polled um, Black people across the country to gauge um, the things that are most important to them. Um, and there's really rich data there. And then, uh, I'll mention another one, the Kirwan Institute at Ohio State is also a place that does really great research on um, uh, the racial wealth gap. Um, in closing, I, again, I'll say that this is really, when you think about job quality, we tend to think of it as an empirical issue, but really it's a moral and ethical issue because it really, again, it depends on if you believe that the system should be working for people, you ask a different set of questions and you tend to get to a different set of outcomes. Um, and then we, I think we have to come to terms with in this, that there may not be a win-win. And when there isn't a win-win, that question tends to get um, answered on moral, ethical, and sometimes political boundaries. And we have to be willing to wage into those because sometimes you're not gonna see the return on investment for the employer, but it still might be the right thing to do. Um, okay, I'll stop there, thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Jeremy, that was terrific. Um, now we'll turn to my wonderful colleague, Amy Blair, our research director at the Economic Opportunities Program. Amy will be sharing the MIT Living Wage Calculator and explaining how we use this tool to measure job quality in a local labor market as part of our work at EOP. Thank you, Jenny, and um, really happy to be on the webinar. I'm standing in for Amy Glassmeyer at MIT, so I wanna warn any other Amy's who I might be listening out on the <laughs> webinar that you might be next, <laughs> might be tapped. But Amy asked me to communicate how much she really regrets not being able to participate today. She was asked at the last minute to present a career award in geographical um, sciences by the American Geographical Society to a longtime colleague. Um, and so she really looks forward to other opportunities to join in on this conversation on behalf of the MIT Living Wage Calculator. Um, I'm probably a pretty good stand-in because I use the Living Wage Calculator every day in my work um, and have been in and out of it in terms of just trying to uh, make sure I understand the, how it works. And um, so um, anyway, so we'll keep going. Some of, so some of these slides are Amy's slides from MIT and some of them are slides that we use here in our Economic Opportunities Program work. And you'll see on this um, slide, there's the um, 
website address for the living wage calculator. Um, the calculator was created for use in policy advocacy by Amy and her um, a cadre, uh, probably of graduate students at MIT during the Great Recession when unemployment was super high and wages were really sliding. Um, the original funding for the calculator came from the Ford Foundation and um, Amy describes operating it in recent years on a very shoestring budget. Um, but the tool um, is used on average about 150,000 times per month um, by unique users, um, by a wide range of organizations, individuals, government agencies, other academics, and even businesses. We, appreci we appreciate the tool here in um, EOP at Aspen because it's nonpartisan, it's transparent in terms of the data that drive the calculations, and I'll talk a little bit about that. And it covers the whole U.S. You know, using a standard methodology, um, so you can go to it and count on being able to get um, the information for a location that you're interested in using. And, and, and in our case, doing work across a number of communities, it's helpful in the sense of um, being able to, to know that it's going to be there. So um, you can forward. So um, living wage um, is defined um, in the calculator as what's the wage that's needed to cover basic family expenses and taxes. Um, you use the calculator to estimate a living wage uh, that's needed to support different family composition mm -hmm. and size. So, for example, the number of working adults, the numbers of children in the home, um, and living wage is calculated um, for different geographies using the tool, which makes it really helpful for understanding communities and how they differ. Um, you can calculate living wage for a county, for a metropolitan statistical area, for um, a state-defined region, um, and at the state and national level. Um, the calculator um, assumes that workers work year-round, uh, which is um, 2,080 hours per year, and the values are reported in 2018 dollars. Um, so the calculator includes estimates for um, cost of living based on expenses for housing, food, child care, transportation, a budget for other necessities needed in, by an individual and a family, and their taxes. This slide um, is really helpful um, because it shows the actual data sources that MIT is using in the calculator um, and that are going into um, the calculation. So um, as I said previously, the calculator gets about 150,000 unique users every month. Um, it includes employers, government agencies, a lot, I should have said this, a lot of different types of um, business. People work, working at different levels in a business, HR as well as corporate offices. Um, union representatives, workforce and social service program operators, and individuals. So um, we can go forward. So this is a screenshot of the first page that you get to on the calculator. You'll see you choose a state. So when you choose a state, um, you can get data for the state as a whole as the next step, or you can select a county, a state-defined region, or an MSA, depending on how the, the state aggregates their data. Um, I'm sorry how the state organizes their um, political jurisdictions that report in that way. So I chose um, to look at the typical expenses for um, New York and the Buffalo, Chictawaga, Niagara Falls MSA, which I'm going to call Western New York. Um, and here's what you can see. This, uh, this chart um, is um, showing you the estimate of typical expenses in the region. Um, the column headers show a variety of different household compositions. So on the left, the darkest color um, shows one adult and zero to three children. So one adult working and zero to three children. And then in the center group, which is kind of a off green on my screen, 
two adults with one one adult working and one to zero to three children, and then on the right, two adults with both working. And in this case, um, it, the living wage account means that you'd have two of those jobs in the household, which is something to keep in mind as you look at the as you look at the chart. And it you know and it goes down and shows you what the different expenses would be typically for that family composition. So you'll see childcare goes from you know, for some families, zero if they're not if they don't have children. Transportation goes up if you have two two wager two two workers versus one. Um, but and 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 giving this level of detail for us, it's 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 really helpful because it also gives you some flexibility. So if if you were working at a at a in a community within this you know Western New York MSA and you knew that transportation expense for whatever reason was much higher or you knew childcare costs were much lower, you could adjust. I mean, you could think about, so what's the living wage? Um, and you could work with it yourself. I don't know if Amy Glassmar would approve of me saying that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you, but you can. <laughs> so, um, the next slide shows um, what the living wage is um, based on those household compositions um, in that region and those expense um, estimates. So what, what you have here are three rows. One is the living wage, which is what's required out of a job to support the set of expenses that we saw on the last slide for the different household compositions. The bottom one, the bottom row is the uh, minimum wage that, um, the official minimum wage in Western New York, which is $10.40 an hour. And then the center column, center column, center row is the poverty wage, which is the wage that um, uh, is, um, used by to it's the HHS poverty threshold that's used to determine eligibility for an individual and family for public benefits. And so you get that oh sorry okay so how we use the tool is um, you'll see you can keep going forward. I've, I've um, we've put together a chart of current jobs in Western New York to show whether they are good jobs, good paying jobs based on the living wage calculator um, for Western New York. And each of these boxes represents the amount of employment in a, a major occupation category in Western New York. So you'll see down on the lowest row, the black box that's very big, sales and related occupations. Um, they, it pays $27,050 a year. Living wage for one adult and zero children is $24,378. So median wage in that occupation in Western New York and all the occupations can support one adult and zero children. Again, remembering that Western New York has a minimum wage of $10.40 an hour. So they're, so I'm, I'm gonna keep going because I don't wanna go, slow down. So we, we, you can look at it, you can use the minimum wage to look at much finer levels of disaggregation in um, occupation um, data as well. We use the BLS, um, BLS data set um, employment projections here. We've pulled out the top 25 occupations with the most net new jobs we, we define that as jobs that are growing in number, not in percent. Um, as Chandra was saying earlier, um, jobs that are growing in high numbers are waiters and waitresses, personal care um, aides. And you'll see them down on this chart, like the and, and uh, food, 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 food serving workers and waiters and waitresses. The, the top on the left side of the chart down at the bottom, those three bottom rows are the, the uh, median wage for those specific occupations in Western New York. And you'll see that combined food prep and serving workers and, and servers, they can't, um, even for an individual living alone, one worker, no children, they can't earn enough if they work full-time year-round, which many don't, um, to, to make a living in Western New York, even at that higher minimum wage. 
and then personal care aides, um, they can earn enough to support themselves, but if they have a child, they, they, can no, they no longer do. So this is something else you can do with this kind of information from MIT, and you can go to your own state bureau. Um, your state agency will publish Bureau of Labor Statistics data disaggregated for different for MSAs, counties, and you can match these things up with the living wage data. And it is, I think, a very compelling um, discussion um, base for local conversations about um, a variety of things. So back up, we want to go forward. The future jobs in Western New York. So this is looking at, again, back to the major occupation categories, not disaggregated by specific occupations. But this is the future 2026 all employment in Western New York. And you'll see that the black boxes, 33% um, of all employment in 2026 in Western New York um, does not pay enough for a living wage for two adults and two children. So the, the, the wage that's above the black boxes. Um, if you have two, if you have two adults in food prep, personal care, sales, healthcare support occupations, they do not earn enough to support a family with two working adults and two children. The blue box, 45% of the, of the labor force, that, that, that work doesn't support a one adult and one child in 2020, you know, in, in Western New York. Only the green jobs up at the top that really um, uh, pay enough to, uh, to, to, to meet all the needs um, of, the, of the budget for any household. So back to, I'm gonna go, so Amy um, has done some, Amy Glassmeyer has done some work um, with the living wage calculator looking at counties across the US and she has found, her, her research shows using the calculator that 97% of Americans live in counties where the living wage is higher than the minimum wage. So what you need, so 97% of all people live in a county where um, the minimum wage is not enough um, to, for, to meet the living wage. 70% of the population live in counties where the living wage is $2.50 higher than the minimum wage. And um, about 38 million um, people live in counties where the living wage is at least $15, per, is at least $15 per hour. Um, so, and, I, and we know that 12% of the population doesn't live in counties where the minimum wage is $15 an hour, um, which is pretty rare. And then the other thing that she's done that's really interesting is she's, she's just done a map showing the distribution of um, living wage gap by county in, um, in 2018 in the U.S. And the, the highest gap is the um, dark green. Um, the places with the highest gaps between living wage and minimum wage are, are urban and suburban counties near the Bay Area, D.C., and New York City. It's places where the minimum wage is still relatively low, um, especially in Northern Virginia, um, and, but the cost of living is, is extremely high. And then in places where um, minimum wages are above the living wage are almost entirely in rural counties and states that have raised the minimum wage. So um, you can see that the, that those policy changes really help people living in rural areas um, when the state raises the minimum wage. People living in lower cost areas really um, stand to benefit from that. And that's in places like Washington State, Eastern Oregon, Northern California, um, rural, not, not the Bay Area city, um, and the Central Valley in California. So um, I ran through a lot of information, I hope. 
that's all I have for now. <laughs> thank you so much to all of our terrific speakers. Um, I want to open it up for questions now. Um, and thanks to all of you who've already submitted questions via the Q&A chat box. Um, and again, because of the size of the audience, attendees are muted. So please use that Q&A box at the bottom of your Zoom window. And if you're not seeing the Q&A function, move your cursor down and it should appear for you. So here's the first question for our panelists. I want to know how to have these kinds of conversations with our local workforce investment board, as well as the city and county administrators for economic development and our newly elected mayor. How do you communicate with policymakers about job quality data? Can I take a stab? Um, this is Amy. Um, I think we have had a lot of conversations using our slide where we're showing people the mix of employment in their region now and projected for the future and how it relates to what's a, what it costs to earn a living in the in the community. And that that is an interesting conversation for a couple of reasons. One is that it sparks conversation about what it costs to live in the community, mm -hmm. which a lot of people in policy positions don't necessarily spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, and then the other is that people are surprised um, and and rightfully probably a little scared. Um, at how much of their employment um, is concentrated in jobs that don't pay um, a living wage and, and what that means for a variety of reasons in the community. Um, I think that um, we've, we've, I mean, I think the response to that has been um, fairly open-minded in terms of, look, it's data and, you know, you, they need, it's, 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 um, I'll yeah. stop. Yeah, no, I, I, this is Chandra. I agree that it's really important. And like, I think a lot of people don't know what it costs to live. They don't know what the median cost of housing is. They have no idea what the cost of food is. You know, when people hear about our poverty levels, they don't realize that that assumes, you know, one third of your income. You know, they, they have no idea what these measures mean. But I also think that it's important to help them understand what that means for the economic development for their communities. Mm -hmm. That when the workers who live in those communities can't afford childcare, can't afford transportation, and they lose their jobs, it's not just a loss of taxes, but it's also the loss of opportunities to attract other businesses who need a workforce that they can count on. But it's also, you know, other investments into their communities. And I think you know, while some politicians, it may not matter, I think for a lot of politicians, if they can understand how important the well-being of their citizens are for the economic growth and development and attractiveness of their communities, that that could be really helpful. And all I'd add is, um, I think challenging, and I, this is a statement not just for workforce boards, but for all the local officials that, that you work with, that those boards are responsible to, is like what would it really look like to have zero unemployment or a hundred percent of people living a live earning a livable wage by the by the, uh, like the MIT uh, metric like what would that look like and what would be the pathway to that and what you'll get is a lot of like well what about homeless people what about what about what about and then the answer is well what about like what would it look like to get those folks to 100% of, of people in our, our that want to work in our community employed? So I think really challenging people and not like allowing the kind of um, 
way that, that we get talked out of making the right kind of demands because um, I, I think when people do that, they may not get to the, get to the ultimate, but they'll have a different conversation. Can I say something fast on that? I think also we don't think about, you know, in workforce development, we think a lot about skills development and upskilling and people moving mm -hmm. up, getting education and moving up. But the reality is that all those jobs on the charts are still there and need to be filled by someone. It's all work that needs to be done. It's important work. In a lot of cases, it's high skill work. And so um, we're just kind of rearranging who who's on, who, where people sit on the chart as opposed to really changing the economic outcomes in our community if we don't think mm -hmm. about um, that. And so that's another case to be made. Um, next question is, <clears throat> there are several elements of job quality, but policy interventions around job quality seem to often focus on increasing minimum wage. However, is there any research suggesting that increasing job quality in other metrics actually helps people get on a path towards upward mobility? Well, Pew did some research not a while ago. It's, it's dated now, but there's a whole set of metrics that shows um, how people build wealth. Um, wage and income is one of them, but of course, retirement benefits is another. Um, secure housing, which is totally tied to where and, and how much you earn. Um, education, access to quality. So there's a whole set of metrics that I, I believe that the quality of a job and the quality of one's life that is, is explored through that job is the pathway, one of the pathways to, um, to uh, building wealth. But what I'll say with that is it is an all or nothing. It is like you have to provide all of these things. People have to have all of these things in order to go. So it isn't a question of wages or retirement, it's wages and retirement, it's wages and medical um, benefits. It is a, it is a, it is a full package that, that creates that like upward mobility and those pathways. And I just want to add to that, you know, uh, this is Maureen, um, that one of the things we've seen when we use the living wage calculator and the charts that Amy was describing and we're having conversations in local communities, you, there are more options than just raising wages for addressing the challenge of how to make work livable. Um, Amy pointed out the different components of the living wage index. So, for example, if you can implement a system in which you're dramatically lowering transportation costs, mm -hmm. then you're moving that line down. So now jobs that were above, were below uh, one of those living wage lines might rise above those living wage lines. So it really does open up a different conversation around what are the multiple ways to think about improving job quality. It's not only raising wages, but also reducing the cost of living can make a really substantial difference. A number of people have written in with questions about how we might go one step beyond measuring job quality to actually think about policy and practice solutions that can improve job quality. Um, especially in low-wage service jobs. So I'd like to ask our panelists to reflect on anything they've seen in the field uh, that seems especially effective in doing that. I'll, I'll go, and I, I know it might be controversial, but look, union participation is an indicator of a lot of this. So it, it, you, union members have higher wages. Union members have access to more benefits. Union members have better, they report better feeling of, of, of quality in the jobs that they have. And this is all documented research. I know that unions become a political conversation, but where we are today in our society, 
most union members are part of public unions, which means many of them are government workers. They are um, higher skilled workers and a lot of the lower skilled trades. So like food service, sales, hard manufacturing are no longer, those jobs are no longer union jobs. So if we know that these things are creating these types of outcomes, if union membership is creating these types of outcomes, it would seem to be a good strategy to, to start to look at union and worker power in some of these fields where people are learn, earning really low wage. So I think we've also seen um, some examples of communities, and we have well, we have seen um, examples of communities who are working that are working on um, scheduling legislation. So fair scheduling legislation, trying to develop you know a policy framework around workers getting the, the uh, um, a minimum number of hours that and that their schedules are giving them them in advance so that they can plan um, and, and be able to bring themselves to work on a schedule that they that they know um, in advance. And we've also seen um, uh, work around um, trying to, well, let me just, I'll say this a different, different way. One of the things that we know from our own research, just thinking about research, is that um, one of the biggest reasons why people lose, lose, a, lose a job is a health crisis. Um, either theirs or a child or a parent, they either have to give care or they need care. Um, and um, if we could tie that type of thing to paid sick leave, which is another area that some communities are trying to um, uh, put, you know, enact legislation around so that, you know, there's a um, some minimum threshold of paid time off that workers are, um, you know, are, are guaranteed to have. So I think that, and you know, if we can, if we can build I don't. I actually agree with Jeremy. I don't think we have to necessarily make sure it's a zero, a win-win uh, situation. But um, policies to um, to work on things like that, I think, are you know good for workers and also good for the local you know workforce. Um, and right, um, we've had a few people write in about. Um, the population that works multiple jobs, and the question of whether there's data out there uh, to represent the experience of that population. That's a great question. Yeah, I mean, there is yeah. obviously data on who works multiple jobs, and you know, I think it's a difficult question because I think if you look at sort of the BLS data, it will say the multiple job holding population is not that great, but people say if you look at tax data, you would see more indications that there's multiple job holding. So I think this is kind of one of those gray areas where um, our, our data may be kind of sending some mixed messages about um, multiple job holding and the degree to which that's, that's happening. Yeah, I don't know where the data is, but I think an emerging place where people are looking is at the gig economy and um, kind of people having a side hustle. Um, to, you know, like Uber, Lyft, TaskRabbit, and how that becomes in many ways a second job uh, for people. But I don't know that there's great kind of data on that. I think, yeah. but. I and, and I think, to be honest, I mean, one of the challenges in multiple job holding is that, as Amy was talking about, sort of the lack of predictability of schedules makes it really hard to hold more than one job. So I think mm -hmm. that that's a real barrier. Toward, so for even people who are underemployed um, and not able to work as much as they want, it's hard for them to sort of fill in with another job because of 
sort of mm -hmm. a lack of predictability of their schedule. Well, and th talking about the gig economy, I mean, some of the data I've seen is that most of the people, while we talk about the gig economy growing, that most of the people that are doing that work, it is because it is a second job. It's one mm -hmm. of those things that they've got that flexibility because in no other job, if everyone's not giving you predictable schedules and not giving you the flexibility to be able to balance, those are, you know, some of those are jobs that allow workers to do that. So that is an important part of what we're seeing is what we're calling the gig economy. Yeah, but I think, I mean, I think that the data that we've seen thus far would indicate that the gig economy is nonetheless, it's, it's, if you think about it as that platform intermediate, mm -hmm. work, it's still pretty small. Yes, yes. Well, thank you to all of you for your insightful questions. I know we haven't gotten to all of them, um, but we hope to get to many of them in our future webinars. Um, and I want to hand it back over to Maureen now to say a few words about what's ahead in this work and how you can engage with us. Well, this is a terrific initial conversation, and uh, we really appreciate everybody uh, joining us for this. Um, and uh, we're going to be uh, having more of these conversations about how to integrate job quality practices into your ongoing work. Um, we'd love to hear from people, so please tell us what you'd like to cover in upcoming web webinars by answering a short polling question. Um, uh, you'll see we've listed a few topics that we're thinking of, but uh, if there are topics you're thinking of, please share that with us. Um, we really uh, would love to sort of respond to the kinds of things that would be most useful to you. Um, and we, we really do want to hear from you, whether you're already improving job quality in your community or you have questions about where to start. Uh, we really want to hear from you as collaborators. Um, you can share your feedback and suggestions on our website link. Um, uh, we have a, a place on our website where you can, where you can write in comments to us. Um, so we really do want to hear from you about what you're doing and what you want to know. Um, and also please keep an eye out for a field survey that we'll be releasing soon um, that will ask more details about uh, your work on job quality. And we'll be also, you know, of course, compiling those results and sharing them out with everyone so that you'll be able to see um, more about what people are doing. So um, please do complete it so we can share that information with all of you and uh, we can learn about how to advance this work together. Um, thank you, thank you for joining us on this journey. Uh, as I said in the beginning, we think that this is a really, really important topic. Um, I think the way Jeremy framed it about don't we want an economy that works for people rather than people that work for the economy. So um, I think to move towards that that, that goal, we um, really need to focus on how do we move the needle on job quality. So thank you so much for joining us today, and we hope that you'll join us again soon.